With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Origins, a talk show podcast encompassing stories about the origin of just about anything and everything. Information, theories, stories, conjecture and ideas from history or geography or science or technology or language or whatever. Come and listen. Better still, call in and join us. Everyone is welcome. Visit the website for show notes and more information. www.bizarrebazaar.info forward slash origins. Talks you ID 11698. Recorded live. Hi, welcome. I've got um, Ben and Lynn in the chat room here. Welcome to Origins, Episode 1. Um, I've designed this TalkShoe podca- uh, podcast to be something that encompasses stories about the origin of just about anything and everything. Um, information or theories, stories, conjecture, ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, anything else, etc. Anything I can find, anything I find interesting that sort of discusses the origin of something or a theory about the origin of something, anything like that. That's what I'm after in this podcast. Um, come and listen. Uh, you can sit on the side and listen if you like or call in if you wish to have a talk or if you have some information about one of my topics or you have a, a story that I haven't heard of. Come along, join in, ring in if you like or just sit on the side. Um, if you'd like to visit the website, it's www.bizarrebazaar.info forward slash origins and that's origins with a Z. And what I've done is I've put links to all the little stories that I've got today. And uh, some of those links will actually go into more detail and refer you to other links about the topics that we were talking about. <laughs> um, I based Origins on, um, if you look at the avatar, on a picture of Charles Darwin. Uh, that's a really nice painting I found of him and stuck the word Origins on top to make it sort of suit my podcast and I just found Charles Darwin an interesting sort of character and if you go to the website uh, there's a picture of Charles Darwin at nine years of age a nice photograph of him holding a pot plant looking really cute and uh, it's uh, one that I hadn't seen before but I found on the internet so I thought I'll pop it on there. Now Charles Darwin of course was the uh, developer writer of the book The Origin of Species and the uh, person who sort of got the whole idea of evolution and everything going along. So what I'd like to do just to start my very first podcast off is just to read a little biography of him. It's only a couple of paragraphs. This just comes from Wikipedia, and it just gives a little bit of an overview of him and his life and what he achieved. Um, Charles Robert Darwin was born on 12th of February 1809 and died on the 19th of April 1882, and he was an English naturalist. After becoming eminent among scientists for his fieldwork and inquiries into geology, 
He proposed and provided scientific evidence that all species of life have evolved over time from one or a few common ancestors through the process of natural selection. The fact that evolution occurs became accepted by the scientific community and the general public in his lifetime, while his theory of natural selection came to be widely seen as the primary explanation of the process of evolution in the 1930s. So obviously, you know, quite a while after he died, which is quite often the case with theories like this. And it now forms the basis of modern evolutionary theory. In modified form, Darwin's scientific discovery remains the foundation of biology and it provides a unifying logical explanation for the diversity of life. Darwin developed his interest in natural history while studying first medicine at Edinburgh University and then theology at Cambridge. His five-year voyage on the Beagle established him as a geologist whose observations and theories supported Charles Lyell's uniformitarian ideas and publication of his Journal of the Voyage made him famous as a popular author. Puzzled by the geographical distribution of wildlife and fossils he collected on the voyage, Darwin investigated the transmutation of species and conceived his theory of natural selection in 1838. Having seen others attacked as heretics for such ideas, he confided only in his closest friends and continued extensive research to to meet anticipated objections. His research was still in progress in 1858 when Alfred Russell Wallace sent him an essay which described a similar theory, promoting immediate joint publication of both of their theories. In 1859, the book On the Origin of Species established evolution by common descent as the dominant scientific explanation of diversification in nature. He examined human evolution and sexual selection in the descent of man and selection in relation to sex, followed by the expression of the emotions in man and animals. His research on plants was published in a series of books, and his final book, he examined earthworms and their effect on the soil. In recognition of Darwin's preeminence, he was buried in Westminster Abbey close to John Herschel and Isaac Newton. So, he was probably typical of the Englishman at the time, who was really interested in many, many things. They, those, the, the guys in those days didn't seem to just be interested in one specific topic. They seemed to have very broad interests. And uh, Darwin was certainly one of those. I've actually just been to the city of Darwin about a week or so ago to visit my son, and it's actually named after Charles Darwin. And apparently the story goes that the ship Beagle, but Darwin wasn't on it at the time, actually visited that area, and in recognition of Darwin... They actually named the city after him, and it's now the capital city of the Northern Territory in Australia. Okay. Now, here's a a little article that I found in the Yahoo News, and it comes from India, of all places, Yahoo News India. And um, it's uh, an article about a advanced civilization which they seem to have found remnants of in Russia and they believe it to be about two and a half thousand years old and uh, this story goes back to um, December 28 so it's just a fairly recent one. Archaeologists have discovered the remains of a two and a half thousand year old advanced civilization at the bottom of Lake Isik on the bottom of Lake Isikul in the oh boy, KYRGYZ mountains in Russia. I'm not very good with my Russians. According to a report the team consisted of historians led by Vladimir Ploshkik, vice president of the Academy of Sciences and other Russian colleagues like historian Svetla 
Lushkabulba. The expedition resulted in sensational finds, including the discovery of major settlements presently buried underwater. The data and artefacts obtained, which are currently under study, applying the finishing touches to many years of exploration in the lake made by seven previous expeditions. The discovery consisted of formidable walls, some stretching for 500 metres, traces of a large city with an area of several square kilometres. Other findings included Scythian burial mounds eroded by waves over the centuries and numerous well-preserved artefacts, bronze battle axes, arrowheads, self-sharpening daggers, objects discarded by smiths, casting moulds and a faceted gold bar, which was the monetary unit of the time. All these discoveries suggest that the ancient city was a metropolis in its time. Some artefacts are in fact so stunning that they point towards an advanced civilization. For example, a two and a half thousand year old ritual bronze cauldron was found at the bottom of the lake. The subtlety of its craftsmanship is amazing. Such excellent quality of joining details together can only be obtained presently by metalwork in an inert gas. Also of superb workmanship are bronze mirrors, festive horse harnesses and many other objects. Articles identified as the world's oldest extant coins were also found underwater and gold wire rings used as small change and large hexahedral gold piece. Side by side with the settlements are remnants of ritual complexes of times immemorial, dwellings and household outbuildings. According to the researchers, the findings lead to the speculation that the local people at the time had a socio-economic system hitherto unknown to historians. As a blending of nomadic and settled life, it either gradually evolved into something different or more likely was destroyed by one of the many local floods. Lake Isikul has played a tremendous role since the inception of human history due to, due to its geographic location at the crossing of the Indo-Aryan and other nomadic routes. Archaeologists have found traces of many religions here, Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. Well, that's an interesting story. You quite often read on the uh, internet of artefacts and things that they find, and things even like the Pyramid and the Sphinx, and, and people today have no idea about how they were made uh, and how the people two and a half thousand years ago actually created things like this. And I always find that stuff quite fascinating. Especially they said, you know, when those things today, that's join joinery that they're doing, uh, they're found, could only be obtained today by using an inert gas. You know, how, how do they do that sort of stuff? You know, and two and a half thousand years ago, so, you know, with, with the floods and, and, and destruction of civilizations, who knows what, what they knew that we're just finding out about now. It's just, that sort of stuff fascinates me. <laughs> okay. Now, here's, I'll just flick to this one. Um, HIV hasn't been in the news a lot lately, but it's been around for a long time. And just for those who um, don't know the history of HIV, I found a little article from the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention. And it just gives a little overview of where HIV came from because I suppose if, um, you know, if, you, if you weren't alive in the, in the 1980s when sort of everything uh, started off, you, you probably don't know the history of it. And those of us who are old enough to have been around when it started sort of basically know the history. So I'll just uh, I'll read it. The earliest known of HIV-1 in a human was from a blood sample collected in 1959 from a man in Kintasha, the Democratic Republic of Congo. How he became infected is not known. 
Genetic analysis of this blood sample suggested that HIV-1 may have stemmed from a single virus in the late 1940s or early 1950s. We know that the virus has existed in the United States since at least the mid to late 1970s. From 1979 to 81, rare types of pneumonia, cancer and other illnesses were being reported by doctors in Los Angeles and New York, among a number of male patients who had sex with other men. These, conditions, these were conditions not usually found in people with healthy immune systems. In 1982, public health officials began to use the term Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or AIDS, to describe the occurrences of opportunistic inven- uh, infections, Kaposi Sakama, a kind of cancer, and pneumonia and a pneumo... pneumo- oh, this is a Latin's not that good. Pneumo- pneumocystis carcinini, pneumonia in previously healthy people. Formal tracking of AIDS cases began that year in the United States. In 1983, scientists discovered that the virus that causes AIDS, the virus was at first named HTLV3-LAV, human T-cell lymphotrophic virus type 3, by an international scientific community. The name was later changed to HIV, human immunodeficiency virus. For many years, scientists theorised as to the origins of HIV and how it appeared in the human population, most believing that HIV (coughs) originated in other primates. Then in 1999, an international team of researchers reported that they had discovered the origins of HIV-1, the predominant strain of HIV in the developed world. A subspecies of chimpanzees native to the West Equatorial Africa had been identified as the original source of the virus. The researchers believe that HIV-1 was introduced into human population when hunters became exposed to infected blood. Yeah, so they think it might have come from the chimps. Okay. Not too bad. Okay, let's have a bit of a, a, bit of a, a humorous thing. We can't sort of make the shows too serious. So these are some useless facts. Okay, useless information, but interesting. The sentence, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog, uses every letter in the English language. 111,111,111 times 111,111,111 equals... Well, let's see what this number is. 12,345,678,987,654,321. So it's actually 12,345,678,987,654,321. Quite interesting. Maths is just marvellous, isn't it? I am is the shortest complete sentence in the English language. A rhinoceros's horn is made of compacted hair, much like our fingernails, I suppose. The shortest war in history was between Zanzibar and England in 1896. Zanzibar surrendered after 38 minutes. A polar bear's skin is black. Its fur is not white, but actually clear. Donald Duck comics were banned in Finland because he doesn't wear pants. More people are killed by donkeys annually than are killed in plane crashes. Shakespeare invented the word... Assassination and bump. Oh, you're back again. <laughs> okay. Um, if you keep a goldfish in the dark room, in a dark room, it will eventually turn white. Women blink twice as many times as men. The name of uh, the word 
The word lithologica describes the state of not being able to remember the words you want. <laughs> okay, why not? Typewriter is the longest word that can be made using the letters on only one row of the keyboard. If the population of China walked past you in single file, the line would never end because of the rate of reproduction. The word race car and kayak are the same whether they are read left to right or right to left. That's, what's that, Lynn? Palindromes? Is that the correct term? A snail can sleep for three years. China has more English speakers than the United States. The electric chair was invented by a dentist. Did you know you share your birthday with at least nine, other, nine million other people in the world? The longest word in the English language is 1,909 letters long and it refers to a distinct part of DNA. And don't ask me to say it. Cats have over 100 vocal sounds. Dogs have only about 10. Our eyes are always the same size from birth, but our nose and ears never stop growing. February 1865 is the only month recorded in history not to have had a full moon. Cat's urine glows under a black light. Leonardo da Vinci invented scissors. Babies are apparently born without kneecaps. They don't appear until the child reaches two to six years of age. Nutmeg is extremely poisonous if injected intravenously. <laughs> if you <laughs> ah, this one's going to get this one's a bit of a laugh. If you yelled for eight years, seven months, and six days, you would have produced enough sound energy to heat up one cup of coffee. If you fart consistently for six years and nine months, enough gas is produced to create the energy of an atomic bomb. I'm going to leave it there. That's enough. <laughs> okay. Hello. Okay, now, um, names, names, those things. Um, always found names interesting. I suppose I've always found the English language fairly interesting. And I was digging around on a website, and I actually just found a, a little bit of an overview of the history of surnames. Now, it's not specific names. It's just generally... Hang on, I'm just hooking my microphone up. It's just generally surnames and a, a bit of an overview of the history of the things. Um, European surnames first occurred between the 11th and 15th centuries, with some patronymic surnames in Scandinavia being acquired as late as the 19th century. Prior to this period, particularly <clears throat> in the, during the Dark Ages, between the 5th and 11th centuries, people were largely illiterate. They lived in small rural areas or small villages and had little need of distinction beyond their given name. During biblical times, people were often referred to by their given names and the locality in which they resided, such as Jesus of Nazareth. However, as populations grew, the need to identify individuals by surnames became a necessity. The acquisition of surnames during the past 800 years has been affected by many factors, including social class and social structure, cultural tradition and naming practices in neighbouring cultures. The majority of surnames are derived from patronymics, i.e. that is the forming of a surname from the father's given name, such as Johnson, meaning literally the son of John. In some rare cases, the naming, the naming practice was metronymic, 
wherein the surname was derived from the mother's given name, such as Catling, Marguerite or Diot. Other popular methods of oranges for sur- origins for surnames are derived from place names, such as geographical names, such as England, occupational names such as Smith or Carpenter in the British Isles, Schmidt or Zimmermann in Germany, etc. Less popular methods of surname origins include household names, such as Rothschild, <coughs> surnames derived from nicknames of physical descriptions such as Blake or Hock, or after one's character, such as stern or genteel. In some cases, an individual was named after a bird or an animal, such as lamb, for a gentle or inoffensive person, while fox was used for a person who was cunning. Surnames were also derived from anecdotal events, such as death and legate, or seasons such as winter and spring, or status, such as bachelor, knight and squire. Surname spellings and pronunciations have evolved over centuries, with our current generation often unaware of the origin and evolution of their surnames. Among the humbler classes of European society, and especially among the illiterate, individuals had little choice but to accept the mistakes of officials, clerks and priests who officially bestowed upon them the new versions of their surnames, just as they had meekly accepted the surnames which they were born with. In North America... The linguistic problems confronting immigration officials at Ellis Island in the 19th century were legendary as a prolific source of anglicisation. In the United States, such processes of official and accidental change caused Bauch, B-A-U-C-H, to become Bohr, B-A-U-G-H, Mixar to become McShay, Simowich to become Simmons, etc., Many immigrants deliberately anglicised or changed their surnames upon arrival in the New World, so, such that Milnar became Miller, Zimmerman became Carpenter, and Schwartz became Black. Hence, regardless of the current spelling of your surname, the spelling and pronunciation of your surname has evolved over the centuries. In many cases, the current generation may be aware of the change. However, In many cases, the change of the surname occurred so long ago they are not aware of the original spelling and pronunciation of their surname. To the trained genealogist, the change or evolution of most surnames is obvious and very interesting, particularly to the bearer of that surname. And if if you're interested in a bit more information uh, and you go to that website, they have links to other genealogy sources that you can actually search up your surnames. But I found that quite interesting that... uh, with the huge immigration into the U.S. in the 19th century at Ellis Island, um, a lot of approximations, obviously, of, of the surnames were just written down to process people quickly because of the spelling. I remember a few years ago I, I did a uh, an election here and I helped work an election and I, I did it in an area of Brisbane where there were a lot of um, Vietnamese people. Yes, wrote it just as it sounded, yeah. And trying to tick people off the electoral roll uh, with the Vietnamese names was just incredible and um, uh, I found it really, really difficult because everyone seemed to have be called Tran or Nguyen and uh, it, people had to sort of try and bring their licences along and it was just incredible. So I can imagine what the people at Ellis Island must have gone through when they're processing thousands of, and thousands of people. Yeah. Okay. Now... Um, just going to have a look at a few English names, and it's, a, it's from a website called 
behind the name. And it's just a, a website that sort of gives you a bit of a meaning of where your first name may have come from. And uh, I thought I might just just have a look at a few of these. Of course, there's thousands on the website, but um, I might just dig up my name in here. See if that's good. I think it usually, what I've read in the past, it usually means small one or something like that. Um, I've got to find it here. Here we go, yeah. It's uh, from the English, French, German, Scandinavian, remaining, Romanian, biblical. It's sort of in all those languages. It's from the Roman family named Paulus, which meant small or humble in Latin. And, um, and there's a bit more information. If you click on a link, it actually gives you some more information. St. Paul was an important leader of the early Christian church. His story is told in Acts in the New Testament. He was originally named Saul, S-A-U-L, but changed his name after converting to Christianity. Most of the epistles in the New Testament were authored by him. There was also the name of six popes. Famous bearers of this name in the art world include Paul Cézanne and Paul Gauguin, both 19th century Impressionist painters from France. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, it's uh, good to have a look at these sites and just work out the history of your name. Um, whether your parents actually considered that when they named you is another thing. Now let's see if I can find Lynn. L Y W N. Here we go. You got L Y N, which is a, a variant of Lynn. L Y N N, uh, from an English surname, which derives from the Welsh L L Y N, which means lake. It can also be a short form of Linda, or names which L in end in Lynn, L Y N, or Line. Don't know if you knew that, Lynn, but there it is. And I see. I see Ben's disappeared again. He comes and goes. But uh, if you're interested, the website's um, www.behindthename, all one word, um, dot com. And obviously when you look through it, a lot of the names are Hebrew or biblical in origin and that sort of thing. Yeah, www.behindthename.com, yeah. And it, it just gives a little list and then each name is a bit of a hotspot and you can click on it and find out some more information. My middle name is Anthony. I'm wondering if I can find that on the list. A-N-T-H-O-N-Y. Just the origin of the name. Oh, here it is. Yeah, my middle name, Anthony, is from the Roman family name Antonius, which is of unknown Etruscan origin. Okay. It has been commonly but incorrectly associated with the Greek word anthos for flower, which resulted in the addition of the H in the 17th century. A notable bearer of the Roman name was Mark Antony or Marcus Antonius, the general who ruled the Roman Empire jointly with Augustus for a short time. When their relationship turned sour, he and his mistress Cleopatra were attacked and forced to commit suicide. Shakespeare's tragedy, Antony and Cleopatra, is based on them. Other famous bearers include the 3rd century Saint Anthony the Abbot, a hermit from Egypt who founded monoasticism and the 13th century St. Anthony of Padua, the patron saint of Portugal. So, um, yeah, so if you're interested, Lynn, that site gives you a bit of an overview, and it's quite succinct and quite easy to read. Okay. <clears throat> now, while we're on words, um, I found another good website called Word Origins and uh, wordorigins.org. Back in two shakes, okay. And it, it does some of the origins of common sayings or words and where they came from. 
I thought I might just do a couple from the letter A. One that interested me straight up is ale, ale or beer. Ale and beer are both words that go back to Old English. Today we distinguish the two as different bed for beverages, but this distinction did not exist in Old English. Rather, ale was the common used word, and beer was much rarer, being reserved for poetic language. But even here its use is rare. Chaucer did not use the word, nor did William Langland in his Piers Plowman. Of the two words, ale is attested to slightly earlier. It appears circa 940 in a manuscript titled Saxon Lichtums. The word beer appears around the year 1000 in a translation of the Gospel of Luke. In the 15th century, brewers began adding hops to their product, and by the 16th century, the word beer was applied to this new style of brew. The modern distinction between ale and beer arose, and the word became beer, and the word beer became much more commonly used. Okay, interesting. Let's find out where the word America comes from. Most people know that America is named after Amerigo Vespucci, and few know why. Two myths about Vespucci are common. The first is that Vespucci was a fraud who never travelled to the New World. The second is that he was the first European to set foot on mainland America. Both are untrue. I'm just talking about the history of the origin of the word America. Uh, Lynn, if you're wondering. Vespucci made two trips to the New World as a ship's navigator, the first in 1499, then in 1503 he published two letters he had written to Lorenzo de' Medici about his voyages. In the letters he put forward the idea that what Columbus had discovered was not in fact a new route to Asia, but rather a new continent. Vespucci also published the first letter under the title Novus Mindus, or New World, thereby coining that phrase. The letters were a media hit, but whether their popularity was because of his innovative navigational theories or his description of the sex lives of American Indians is a question, and Vespucci became a celebrity. <clears throat> so America is named after the first man after the man who first recognised that it was a new continent and not just part of Asia Asia, and rather fittingly actually, at least from a European perspective. So it's named after the man Amerigo Vespucci. Although I was reading an interesting article yesterday about the Chinese and um, there's a theory going around which I'll talk about in the next Origins one, that the Chinese have actually travelled the world long before Columbus and all that in large ships that they created oversized junks and things. And I've actually seen something on, uh, I think it was National Geographic about this, where one of their emperors encouraged the development of large fleets of ships, and they actually did sail to many areas of the world long before the Europeans did. And uh, apparently there was a repressive, um, uh, what do they call it, a regime in China after this guy, and a lot of the evidence and that was, was destroyed and burnt. But I know in Australia here, they, people swear that they have actually found um, Chinese artefacts and even a possibility of a Chinese junk on the islands off the coast of the city where I live, and that was buried in the sand, and people swear that that sort of thing exists. So I'll develop that one a bit more uh, in the next episode, and I'll read the little article about it. <clears throat> now... The word angel, where does the word angel come from? Well, angel comes from the Greek angelos, meaning messenger. The Greek word was used in the Septuagint, a Greek translation of Hebrew scriptures written sometime between the 3rd and 1st centuries BCE to translate 
the Hebrew. And the Hebrew word is malak, I think. The malak, Yahweh, is a messenger of Jehovah. From Greek, the word was borrowed into Latin, becoming Angelus, and from Latin into the Germanic languages. Exactly when English picked up, the word is uncertain, but it clearly predates the Norman Conquest. The earliest known appearance in English writing is from about 950 AD in the uh, Lindisfarne Gospels in Matthew 22.30. Okay. One more from Word Origins. It's a good website if you've got something, nothing to do and you want to browse it. Jump on the bandwagon. Let's have a look at that one. One of the most frequent questions to this site's discussion forum has been where the phrase jump on the bandwagon comes from. The confusion stems from the fact that the phrase survives into the 21st century while bandwagons are long gone. In the 19th and early 20th century America, a bandwagon was exactly what it sounds like, a wagon, usually horse-drawn, which carried musical band. Bandwagons were also used in circuses to lead parades and at political rallies. Hence, to join or jump on the bandwagon was to follow the crowd, and in a political context was the connotation that one was there for the entertainment and excitement of the event, rather than from deep or firm conviction. The first known use of the term bandwagon is from 1885 in P.T. Barnum's Life. At Vicksburg, we sold all our land conveyances, excepting four horses and the bandwagon. Use of bandwagon as a metaphor for political campaign dates to at least 1884, when the magazine Puck, P-U-K, published a cartoon depicting Chester A. Arthur driving a bandwagon full of presidential hopefuls. The familiar phrase first appears in 1899 letter by Theodore Roosevelt. When I once became sure of the majority, they rumbled over each other to get aboard the bandwagon. Hmm. Okay. I won't do too many, another one anymore from there at the moment because uh, it gets a little boring. Okay. Now, I was reading an article the other day about the Sphinx, uh, the Sphinx in Egypt, and there's actually, didn't realise it, there's a whole pile of Sphinxes all over the place uh, in various cultures, but the most famous, of course, is the, um, the one in Egypt. And there's a theory that the Sphinx actually predates uh, the pyramids and all that by many thousands of years. And um, I might just... Um, just read the little bit, and it's just it's on the website called www.unmuseum.org forward slash sphinx. And I won't go into the full little history of the sphinx, well, the conventional history of the sphinx, because that's actually on the website if you want to have a read. But I'll just read the little insert, and it says, The Sphinx, older than we think. Conventional science has held that the Sphinx was carved out of an outcropping during the reign of King Khafra around 2,500 BC. In 1979, though, an amateur archaeologist named John Anthony West wrote a book entitled Serpent in the Sky. In the book, West suggested that the Sphinx was far older than the pyramids and its severe erosion was a result of rain and not blowing sand. Therefore, concluded West, the Sphinx must have been built thousands of years earlier when the land was much wetter. Nobody gave West's theory much attention until West brought in a trained geologist from Boston University named Robert Shosh. Shosh examined the Sphinx and thinks some of the fissures in the rock were indeed created by running water or rain. 
His conclusion is that the front and side of the Sphinx dated from 5000 to 7000 BC and was remodelled during Khafre's era to give the likeness of the pharaoh. Other Egyptologists argue that the original estimate is still right and that the fissures found by Shosh were the result of wet sand being blown up from the Nile River, not rain. So there's a little bit of interest. So the Sphinx may be older than you think. And when you look at it, it's quite a different design to the, um, the pyramids. And when you read the article, it's actually carved mainly out of one solid piece of stone. So if it was carved and made a few thousand years before the pyramids, who did it? Another one of those uh, unusual stories that I find interesting. Okay. Now... <clears throat> I found a little article that's not in the show notes and it's actually about Antarctica. And it's from National Geographic, so it's a fairly um, good source. And this one dates to December the 27th. And it's entitled, Antarctica May Contain an Oasis of Life. And it's sort of overturning the perception that Antarctica is a barren polar desert. It may be more than we think. Antarctica is not a barren polar desert, but a rich, complex environment that may contain a thriving oasis of life, experts say. Researchers have uncovered a complex subglacial system miles under the ice where rivers larger than the Amazon link a series of lake districts which may teem with mineral-hungry microbes. The watery environment may be more than one and a half times the size of the United States, scientists say, which would make it the world's largest wetland. This is essentially a whole new world that 10 years ago we didn't know existed, said Michael Studdinger, a geophysicist with the Lamotte-Doherty Earth Observatory of Columbia University in New York. If you peel back the ice sheet, you would expect a watery landscape similar to what we would see on the surface of the Earth. Studdinger's research focuses on recovery lakes, part of a series of cascading lakes found earlier this year under the ice sheet. The lakes, isolated from the atmosphere for more than 30 million years, ebb and flow as they empty into the polar sea. They stay fluid because the ice sheet above acts like a gigantic blanket, trapping heat rising from the Earth's interior. About 145 lakes have been found, under the ice up to two and a half miles thick. Recovery lakes trigger ice streams that lubricate and drain parts of the ice sheet into the ocean, meaning they provide surprising insights into the effects of global warming, Studdinger said. Because so much of the Earth's fresh water is tied up in these ice sheets, warming trends may add to the lubricating effect and release more water than anticipated into the ocean, raising sea levels. Fifteen years ago, people thought East Antarctic ice sheet was frozen to the bedrock, but now we know that this is not the case, he said. This is a dramatic development in the way we look at Antarctica. In 2008, Studdinger plans to fly over Antarctica in an aeroplane equipped with new radar technology that can see through the ice and detect new lakes. It's difficult to say how many more lakes we may find, but we know for sure that we will discover more, he said. Only a very small portion of Antarctica's landmass has been surveyed, mostly because it is one of the most inaccessible places on Earth. Studdinger had it. 
And, of course, the article then goes on. I won't read the rest, but then they're talking about the possibility of untapped resources and everything like that in Antarctica. But it's, a, it's certainly an interesting find. It could be a, a whole new world sitting under the ice sheets. Okay. Well, I'm going to leave the first episode of Origins there, and uh, I'll try to do another one of these of a similar time next week. So to all those who are listening, thanks for listening, and I'll just end the recording. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.